0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Kwame Edwin Atu, who is the author of the book, Amphibious Subjects, Sasso and the Contested Politics of Queer Self-Making in Neoliberal Liberal Ghana, published by the University of California Press. Dr. Atu, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so very much for having me, Reagan.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book today. And I wanted to just start with a question that we normally begin with, which is how did you come to write the book? And can you tell us about yourself, anything about your background, and what sparked your interest in queer lives and community in Ghana?
0: Thank you so very much for having me once again and thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about the book. I think this would be the very press platform on which I'm discussing the contours of the book. And um so to answer your question, I would say that I came to my my life really sparked or uh, my being, you know, um sparked the book. Really. It was the impetus, it was the impulse for, for, for writing this book and I, I really wanted to think about myself, you know, in the book as, an, as a queer subject who, you know, was raised in a country that told me that being queer was impossible or that church that being queer was not Ghanaian or was not African, right? So growing up in a society that literally um, gives you a narrative that erases you, but then your body tells you something else right? Your desire tells you something else. So how do you reconcile with your experience in your body or what you actually sense, right? With what the world is telling you, this, you know, heteronormative, if you will, world. So I think that was the spark, but I took a course in graduate school called Culture and AIDS. And that class was taught by a cultural anthropologist. And it was actually a class that somehow offered me with this opportunity to think about, you know, homosexuality. At the time, I had not really yet explored the concept of queer, right, or the very idea of queerness and queer identity. I I was interested in homosexuality because this class on culture and AIDS really um, deployed a medical anthropological approach to studying, you know, um, homosexuality. And so, uh, or to deploy the medical anthropological approach to studying AIDS. When we got to the Africa section, the ways in which AIDS was construed really shocked me. Right, in Africa alone unlike the other continents, AIDS was AIDS transmission was reduced to heterosexual transmission. Right? And I I was like, But there are homosexuals in Africa, right? So where are the homosexuals in these medical narratives on HIV and AIDS that are being parroted by public health organizations as if to say that um there were no homosexuals or gay men in in Africa who were also victims of the HIV and AIDS pandemic right and so the the class packed an interest in me to really pursue this this you know um passion this thing that became my passion for queer 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 projects in Ghana and and that took me down this rabbit hole really i wanted to just prove to the class and to the professor that, listen, your interpretation of HIV and AIDS in Africa is reinforcing this Pavlovian description of Africa as a space or a continent without homosexuals, right? So... My paper was intended then, my final paper for that class, was intended to really critique and interrogate, you know, this assertion that HIV and AIDS in Africa was really heterosexual transmission, right? And I think that really opened the pathway for me to begin to explore more about, about this project. But again, so I think my, point, my, my my answer to your question is, I entered this book in, in, a, in a dual way. One, was, one is through my own experience as someone who knew themselves to be gay, or to be different, or to be living a life that was not actually in alignment with what society told me that I was. And two, the class the class gave me an opportunity to also really delve deeper into these kinds of assumptions that erase and omit queer subjects from public health conversations on HIV and AIDS.
1: Now, that's really interesting. And it's really great to hear people's their kind of origin stories and entry points into the into these projects. So, and that takes me to my next question, which is of course, so you, you know, your passion for the project comes through in that you give us this ethnography of queer self-making in, in Ghana. And so you take as your main focus, the Sasso community in Jamestown, Ghana. And I wanted to ask this question of, um, can you describe aspects of the Sasso community? And I also ask this because I think listeners wouldn't necessarily know, you know, instantly, you know, what, what is Sasso? And so um, to you, so what does Sasso mean?
0: So Sasso means, thank you for that question. Sasso really is the God term for co-equal, right? In Akan, which is my mother tongue, it's Sasso. Right. So if someone tells you that you are not my co-equal, it's actually a claim of superior a claim to superiority that you are not my co-equal. Right? So sasso as a term is redeployed by self-identified effeminate men. So there are many iterations of sasso as I discovered during my ethnography that sasso is co-equal. That's etymological etymological roots for the term. But then self-identified effeminate man, as I describe in the book, as sasso, right? So that is the noun, right? But then sasso is also a verb, right? People who engage in homoerotic encounters would be seen as sasso or or as engaging in sasso right so they do not necessarily have to be self-identified effeminate men nor should they be you know um uh, men, right? That So which means that women who have sex with women or women who engage in homoerotic encounters could also be um, sasso, right? And sasso could also be just an adjectival thing, right? It describes how one, you know, um, uh, exacts or exudes their mannerisms. So then, you know, you might be feminine but not be engaging in homo... You, you may be effeminate, but you wouldn't engage in homoerotic. Right. That makes you Sasso too within this universe. So it's a very complicated, I call it pluriverse of identification. Sasso historically or originally means co-equal, but then self-identified effeminate men in this community have really, in Jamestown in particular, have redeployed or have mobilized Sasso, have taken Sasso because Sasso is also less um, problematic in many ways, right? Sasso doesn't carry the baggage that, for example, lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender, queer, plus carries. Nor does it carry the baggage that kwejo which is actually the term for a man who acts like a woman, carries, right? Because kwejo is more derogatory. And kwejo as it were, is, is really what a lot of Ghanaians knew Queer people to be, queer men in particular, right? So so then becomes a more palatable way of describing. This community of self-identified effeminate men. And so somehow you have to be within the Sasso network to know what Sasso means, right? So if you're not part of the network, you wouldn't know. So it's it's really a quote that allows them to also deflect and to, you know, uh, put on hold any potential of homophobia. Mm-hmm.
1: That is fascinating. Wow. That's very, very interesting. um, The use of that term and and um, how you use it to describe the, you know, the community um, in lieu of these other kind of Western terms that many of us would would instantly think about. Um, And so I wanted to take us to, I guess, the beginning of the book where you. You begin the book with this arrival scene into Accra, Ghana. And so your arrival scene into the country is also the reader's arrival scene into the book and into its narrative. And so you open up the book with this encounter with a sign. And the sign is, I'm going to quote from the sign. And so using the sign's terms. And so the sign is warning against, quote, sexually abhorrent behaviors and warns against, quote, pedophiles and sexual deviants. And it says, you know, they should stay away from the country. And so I wondered for you, um, you know, what does the sign tell us about the sexual norms that the state is trying to enforce in Ghana?
0: So let me tell you my very first encounter, how I I reacted upon seeing that sign for the first time, if you don't mind a little anecdote. So I had actually arrived in Ghana for the first time, I think, in 2011. To start this project and you know i had been in i'd been in the u.s then for almost five years i hadn't been back to ghana so i was now out i had been out in the u.s and i was going to ghana as a very different person clearly my masculinity had changed i was not like the kwame who left ghana in 2007 and was you know, endowed with this Christian masculinity, right? So when I say Christian masculinity, I mean, I had a short hair, I was very preened and proper, respectable, dressed and wore, like, tucked in iron my shirt, as Christian men do in Ghana. I was this, like, very Victorian Ghanaian who left the shores of Accra in 2007. And in 2011, I returned and I had my locks, you know, I have these locks, I am in tight jeans, I'm just sashaying my way around the airport, get off the plane. So I get off the plane, walk by the immigration booths, only to be greeted by the sign on the wall. So suddenly, Professor Gilliam, I... I had to modify my body, right? I had to actually not draw too much attention to the ways in which I was presenting my masculinity because my masculinity was not in consonance with the hegemonic notions of masculinity of the Ghanaian nation, I realized, right? So I had to remodify. It was a corporeal kind of rearrangement that I had to do. So I had to actually then, you know, make sure my chest was out. I had the broad shoulders, then, you know, carried my bag and then walked to, you know, it, it was this kind of performance of masculinity as a way of deflecting attention from my new queer masculinity, if you will, right? And so that was my first reaction to the sign. I just wanted to share that. But what the sign also told me was this idea that, oh, all these um uh, deviant acts, whatever those mean, of pedophilia, because they're actually, you know, grouping pedophilia in with other sexually aberrant acts. And of course, sec- the sexually aberrant acts aren't specified, but then we do know, right? We do know what they mean. It's a code for something, right? Something that is seemingly out there, right? So then pedophiles are not within Ghana. That pedophiles come to Ghana. That Ghana is actually a space where... Pedophilia does not exist, right? It's also a space where sexually aberrant acts do not exist. So the nation is truly really construing this purified sense of itself, that these acts have to come from the outside, they have to be alien, right? So uh, the, the the fact that the airport, which is the portal of arrival, becomes the precise domain at which these aberrant acts are confiscated or you know or, or or held at bay, was fascinating to me because the nation was really marking its ground; it was marking its territory, right? And for me, that was what the sign was doing. That the sign is simply telling us that Ghana sees itself as you know a space where. Everything is a it's a very decorous space, a very moral space, and that any form of immorality, whatever that means, comes out of Ghana and cannot be found of Ghana, cannot be found within Ghana, right? So the sign really then polices sexual citizenship, right? That you have to conform within the parameters of what Ghanaians want, right? And what it, it did for me in, at, the, at that moment was to really think about the ways in which uh, Ghana asserted itself or presented itself to the bigger world or the wider world, right? Ghana wants to see be this kind of, you know... Um, uh, icon in the West African you know subregion as a space of um not just hospitality, but then there are also Christian sentiments, right, that are actually underneath or that are the t- subtext for for this, this sign. So that, that was my reading of the sign, right, that the sign is intended to mark Ghana as primarily free, f- free of pedophilia, free of any sexually aberrant behavior, including homosexuality or queerness, and so Ghana has to be the place where moral beings are created or it's an unscathed domain mm-hmm.
1: now i like that um how you bring in the antidote and you're reading of the sign because you you tell us how you bodily uh had to reconfigure yourself in line with this idea of ghana as this you know moral space as you said with uh, you know with this um, where Christianity is dominant and there is no um, homosexuality. And that takes us back to what you said earlier also about how, you know, people exist and yet they're told that their sexualities don't exist. Um, and so that takes me then to the, Uh, title of the book, again, the amphibious subjects, um, because you describe Sasso as having amphibious subjectivities. And of course, um, as I said, that's also the title of the book. And so I wonder too, then, can you tell us about this idea of the amphibious subject? What does it mean? Um, How do you, you know, theorize this term?
0: Thank you very much. So, I think let's go back then to the scene at the airport and my performance, right? My switch from this queer masculinity to this Christian masculinity as becoming the basis for what becomes um, the, the, the term amphibious, right? That, that if the, amphibia, the amphibian as a creature or as a being is one that lives on b- both land and in water, Right, the airport space, which is also a kind of liminal space, serves as the boundary at which I switch from being queer, which was my identity, in uh, until I left the plane, right, into Ghana. So then, the back and forth, right, between my queer masculinity and my Ghanaian Christian heteromasculinity becomes a kind of framework, but. I I need to actually uh, before amphibious. I was going to use reluctant as I I was thinking about reluctance as the optic for thinking about this project, right? And I realized that reluctance would not quite catch what I was doing, and so, um, and and you know when I was using reluctance, reluctance. I was going to call the piece Reluctantly Queer, and that is really where I get the title for the film, which we'll talk about. But, like, Reluctantly Queer was not quite um, doing it for me as an intellectual, as a thinker, and as an anthropologist, precisely because with Reluctance, I was using a lot of Western theory to think about queer subjectivity. But with amphibious subjects, I had someone to go to, Kwame Juchi, right? And so in... In the field, right, I saw that these Sasso men had to actually embody multiple selves at their work, at their churches, with their friends. At the NGOs, they work in the public sphere, right? And so it is it it, it is a shape-shifting tendencies of these men that actually compelled me to actually um to, to 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 look to amphibian or the amphibious subject as as a very useful theoretical framing for situating or making sense of subjectivity or their forms of self-fashioning, right? So Having been in the field and seen the ways in which these men, you know, fashioned themselves, because I was with them, with their families, I went with them to churches, we went to ritual spaces, we went to them to the, I worked I, like I went to their NGOs, and in all of these domains, right, they were enacting forms of selves that were not always uniform, right? So for me, the amphibian as a heuristic became so critical more so than reluctance, right? I was like, they are not being reluctant. They are just really embodying or manifesting what Kwame Jechi calls the amphibious personhood, right? And so that is how I came to the term. Not sure if that responds to your question here.
1: Oh, that absolutely responds mm-hmm. to the question. And it, it tells us exactly um, what I also picked up in the book about the amphibian and how it's on, you know, land and water, and how it has to negotiate between these different terrains um, in its, you know, in its subjecthood. Um, and so you mentioned also Kwame Giechi and um, his idea of amphibious personhood. And I wondered, I have this question, I guess, about, about your use of a Ghanaian philosopher in the book. And I'm thinking about this quote that you have in the conclusion of the book. And so my question is going to come in the context of this quote. And so the quote is, queer Africa is much more than Michel Foucault and Judith Butler. It yeah. is lazy to always start queer African narratives with either this French philosopher or his American compatriot. And this is from Stella Nianzi in Queering Queer Africa. And so I guess in the context of this question, um, what was it meaningful for for you to use a Ghanaian philosopher um, to build these theories about Ghanaian
0: people? It was super meaningful because of course, already the discourses around queerness basically say that, you know, queer subjectivities are Western, right? So why would I actually want to study that by rehearsing queer theories from the West, right? Because then I'll be giving further to um, critics of queer subjectivities in Ghana to say that this is the point, this is why it's Western. So Kwame Jechi's theorization Comes in so handily, right? It, it allows for me to actually root the study in the context of Ghana. It is a Ghanaian subjectivity, right? And the ways in which Sasso themselves embody being Sasso is quite reminiscent of what Jichi is doing in his analysis of personhood. Right, so he couldn't be a much he couldn't he couldn't be a more appropriate intellectual or um interlocutor theoretically for me, right that he had already given me he had the language, he also had the insights, plus he's also a philosopher. But then again, I was also like so disinterested in the Western theories because I'm like we, we do have a fec- there's a second opportunity we we have this privilege and capital, philosophical capital in our own domains. Why don't we, you know, exploit these opportunities? Jechi is waiting to be seen. Jechi actually taught me. So why would I actually, you know, (laughs) look somewhere else? Because 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 they are wide that makes them more philosophical than Juchi. when Juchi is really ethnographically grounding their philosophy he may not have been an ethnographer but then clearly his philosophical contributions are deeply rooted in what are, what is arguably kenyan culture right so i already had that framework set for me all i had to do was to pluck from it and it made sense in the context of the project
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that term philosophical capital. That's a great, that's a great term. And then, you know, and then you kind of ethnographically ground it and put some sort of empirical meat on those bones, which is what, you know, anthropologists tend to do, like that's our, that's our project. Um, And so in that, I wanted to dive into your ethnography, um, because the book really includes these descriptive scenes of community life. And so in chapter three, for example, you talk about um, the Sasso community rituals, where they're attending birthday parties, and what are called, I guess, outdoorings, or Christenings. Um, and so these are ritual spaces. And of course, you know, anthropologists would understand that these are um, spaces of ambiguity and spaces of kind of freedom from the social structure. And so, what were these rituals like? And how do these rituals help us understand the Sasso community and amphibious personhood?
0: <laughs> so, rituals are actually as Ghanaian as it gets. You know, on a weekend, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, is either a wedding, an outdooring, a funeral. The Dutch anthropologist, Zach Van Der Gist, even has this article entitled, um, Funerals for the Living. It is, this, it is this little ethnography on Ghana where he says that funerals in Ghana are actually rituals for the living, just because of just how widespread and so prevalent they are. So for me, rituals, uh, already a, like an everyday experience, right? And, and Sasso, as I did this project, are so centrally involved in rituals in spite of the very heteronormative nature of these rituals. So growing up in Ghana, I mean, this project really then somehow also allowed me to time travel into the past to make sense of how also Sasso have always been there. Right, These men are either cooking, right? they are either the uh, masters of ceremonies, they are doing something industrious in the space to make sure that the ritual is a success. right? And we, we, they are being effeminate in these spaces, but nobody questions them. So of course, their labor in the space of the ritual right, is actually exploited, but then beyond the ritual. So the, there are multiple liminalities here, right, that... The, the ritualized space really becomes a space where you can be feminine, maybe because your labor has been exploited or maybe because in that space and that space alone, your labor or you are so seen as someone with a talent. Right? And so we are not going to remind you, or you're not going to be interpolated as Sasso in that space, or you're not going to be called Quadrobisia. You're not going to be um, booed at for being effeminate. Right? So the ritualized space then becomes a space where Sasso really tries to compensate. For there's so many things that society disallows them from having, right? And so the birthday and the christening ceremony I witnessed were so significant because, again, at these spaces, Sassos' identities become legitimate because they are integral. Like they run, they are the. I, I, I say that they are the heartbeat in fact, of these rituals, right? And that was one of the things I was trying to actually dis- 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 like disentangle in the piece, is that why is such a heteronormative um, ritual so reliant right, on subjects who are actually, or whose existence, whose bodies, whose being, right, are actually in contradistinction with the heteronormative formation, the ritual that is, right? And that, for me, was so critical because... The ritualized space then was not a space where it, it wasn't a, an anti or for, against. There, I, I, I think I was trying to, Reagan, I was trying to think through the ways in which the ritual afforded us with an, with an opportunity to think about, you know, what some queer scholars have called anti normativity, that it is not always In coalition that like being queer does not mean you have to be in opposition to heteronormativity, that these structures are actually very intricately intertwined and that the ritualized domain makes these intertwinements very palpable. Right. So rather than see, you know, heteronormativity or heteroerotic formations as always batting heads or being in opposition with homoerotic tendencies, that in fact the ritual somehow reveals or exposes those, you know, mutual entanglements. Right, those unforeseen affinities or or, or or unimagined alliances that exist between heteronormative rituals and homonormative subjects or homo, no, heteronormative rituals and homoerotic leaning or um, gender non-conforming subjects, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, And so another place you went, you went to these, you know, rituals, and we see them in the book. And then another place where you were, as you had said earlier, you were in these NGOs. And in the book, you describe the compulsory homosexuality of the NGOs. And they have these, you know, various programs and agendas. And so there, it seems like the ones you were going to are involved in sexual health and rights. Um, but it seems like they're also very constraining in their understandings of sexuality. And so how do SASO lives, you know, exceed these understandings of sexuality that the NGOs put forth?
0: So, thank you so much. So there was something about in the book that I call, um, maybe I did not put that in the book, so pardon me. Um, It's called, you know, um, pretentious conformity. It's a term I wanted to use. And when I say pretentious conformity, this desire to conform by pretending, right? And so then the NGOs are themselves engaging in that pretentious conformity. But then I am imagining this pretentious conformity, which could be this compulsory heterosexuality, right as uh you know as a reflection or an iteration of why amphibiousness is useful. Right because the organizations themselves have to give you know this air of you know so of of course a lot of these sexual health projects use sexual health projects but then under the banner of sexual health they're actually dealing with not just people living with hiv and aids victims of domestic um victims of 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 sexual and gender-based violence um but they're also dealing with queer people right so even the use of men who have sex with men for example right within in in in, in by these organizations is a way to mask right? The fact that you're actually engaging with or in in conversation with with homosexual men, because homosexuality, mind you, in Ghana is illegal or is criminalized, right? So Uh, These NGOs are actually in a very dicey situation. On the one hand, they want to actually um, reach out to the queer community because they are human rights communities, but then the members within the organization themselves hold on to their own beliefs, right? How can you work in an organization that reaches out to queer people and be Christian? And and, and so there were these tensions within the organization as to what the primary commitments of the organization were, right? And the ways in which these primary commitments or goals and objectives were always somehow conflicting with their own moral, you know, um, orientations, if you will, which were mostly deeply rooted in Christianity or Islam, right? So uh, the pretentious conformity then was enacted both by the members of the NGOs as well as the SASO who worked in the NGOs, right? It's like we are not going to talk about the fact that you are SASO right we are not going to talk about the fact that the the Sasso are also not going to talk about the fact that we know you are homophobic so let's all live in this situation together and pretend we don't know what each other is (laughs) does that make sense
1: Yes, that is that is fascinating. Um, Yeah, I really I like that. And you mentioned the Christianity of the of the workers and how some of these norms are rooted in Christianity. Um, And so that takes me to my to my next question, which is like Christianity is ever present in the book. Um, It's present in the lives of the Sasso who you talk to, who are attending church they're, they consider themselves to be good Christians. Some of them are are kind of have these leadership roles in the church, but they still kind of experience this non belonging. I think. And so, what is the role of Christianity in sexual culture of Ghana? And then also, I had this question of, did you know that Christianity was going to play this role in the book that it that it plays? And I asked this as someone who, you know, we start off with these projects and we go into the field, and sometimes just these other areas emerge that we may not have previously thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, a a bigger, a bigger thing. So that's, that's where that question comes from about, did you know that Christianity was going to play such a big role?
0: You know, wow, that's a very good question. It's a very good question because this is what happens when you are raised Christian, that because I'm coming from a very conservative family, my parents are Presbyterian, that Christianity, to be honest with you, Dr. Jillam is um is an afterthought, really. I mean, because I am Christian and or I was raised Christian, or that I am now, but it, it never really registered as um as a category to analyze, right? Or as a unit of analysis, because like, oh, I'm Christian, everybody in Ghana is Christian, so w- what's a big deal, right? But I think ethnography has a way, and I think that was the usefulness of returning home as an, as an, as I was like the outsider within to use Patricia Hill, Hill Collins' term, but there's something about being a native ethnographer, that you are no longer as native as you think you were, right? So I arrive and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, what's going on? I was focused mainly on the government. I was focused mainly on people and homophobia. Uh, and at some point Christianity was just really not occurring to me. But then it was always there. It was something I could not avoid. So I actually came to the Christian section when I went into the archive. Because in the, when I went to the School of um, Oriental, like the Missionary Collections, which is actually at the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, in London. And in the archive, I see all these documents and correspondences between um, churches in the UK. And Ghana, right, trying to actually, you know, pursue projects to end polygamy, right, in Ghana. And I'm like, oh my god, like, this is like Christian NGOs, <laughs> right, working to proselytize and, you know, uh, make monogamy the thing because monogamy was being marketed or parroted as what would make Ghana a modern nation after the. British left, right? So that is actually the other way I entered. That my my entrance, the Christian bit, really came through my engaging with the archive right and then that is what then opened me up back to the ethnography and the preponderance of christianity everywhere i think the archive made me better understand why christianity is so widespread in ghana and the fact that what is happening now cannot better be understood if we do not return to these historical artifacts you know that that helped to shape and consolidate christianity in ghana so yeah it was an afterthought in a way
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it was very it was very interesting. I, I liked it. I wasn't necessarily expecting it, but you know when you read ethnographies, you, you you don't know everything, that's why you read them. and so that that was just a you know a really nice uh, added layer to the, to the world that you were, you know, exploring in the book and and analyzing for us. So, um, so I really like that. And then you, you talked about earlier how you were going to use this term reluctant. And so this takes me to your short film, um, reluctantly queer, which you wrote and starred in. And I wondered if you, you wanted to tell us about the film and it, I saw it I haven't seen the film, but you do talk about films in the book as well. The films that these NGOs were producing um, about queer Ghanaians. And so I wonder, too, if your film might be kind of a representation that challenges these NGO representations um, in expanding the field of images about queer Ghana.
0: Right. Thank you. So Reluctance. Yeah. That film was written as a as an epistolary film, a letter to my mother, because I'm very, very, cl- I'm an only child. So my mom and I are like, you know, best friends. Oh, we're best friends, you know? And and then you come out and your mom is like, hey, you know, this is not who you are. Is this what America has made you into? And so, you know, I go to Ghana and I tell my my parents actually, did, I mean, my per- I think my parents always knew I was queer, but, you know, when i knew i was not going to call my book or dissertation reluctantly queer i i knew i was not going to call it reluctantly queer because it was about me i was a reluctant subject i was the one who was reluctant to come out to my parents and i was imposing this autoethnographic um, experience on my interlocutors, who clearly did not have to be reluctant because they lived in Ghana, they used Sasso, and you know, it was actually a kind of a public secret that these men engaged in or uh, were, were engaged in homoerotic encounters right in Jamestown. So, why would I come in as a researcher and then impose right, my own understanding of, of being queer on them? So, I still had, I, 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 I did not want to do away with reluctance. I had, I wanted to rescue it. And so, the outlet of the film or the experimental film became useful because that was the only way I could actually recuperate or restore reluctance as a. A useful analytic for Kwame o2 right so <clears throat> it's a letter to my mother and and in it i'm i'm trying to basically say that listen uh yeah, in the, I, I'm, what is home for me as a queer subject? You know, I know that if I, as a queer African subject, what that, what does it mean to be, to be in pursuit of a home? I go to Ghana, I can't be gay, and here I'm a black person, right? So how do, you, wh- what does the concept of home mean when in the U.S. I can't be? The U.S. is often construed in the Ghanaian imaginary as a citadel or a Mecca of queer. Queer liberation, but then if you're queer and black in the U.S., as a black person, you know, um, as a queer person, your blackness undercuts whatever, whatever liberatory potential that this country is supposed to afford you, right? So the letter was then, in fact, trying to tell my mother that listen, I don't have any home, because even in the U.S., being a black subject really means, you know, being or like living in a space of uh, uh, fearing death all the time. And what does that mean? And in Ghana, the same thing applies to being a queer subject. You live in a constant state of precarity or uncertainty. right? So what do I call home? And I think deep down in that film is also my kind of criticism to all these Western NGOs um, and Western documentarians who actually portray the West as a safe space. Because the West is definitely not a safe space for queer black subjects or queer subjects of color. And that is what I was trying to convey in, 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 the, in, in the film, which is that uh, my African diasporic um, queer comrades, right, do not find this place a safe place for them because this is not a home. So where do we find us a home? And, and that was what I was trying to get with Reluctantly Queer in my conveyance of, of this dilemma to, to my mother,
1: Mm-hmm. yeah that was that was really well said um i'm also an only child but also i like this i like this question of like what does the ethnographer do with all of, with this material like what do you do with your concepts and your ideas and where do you put them and how do you express them and some mediums are better than others so film might express one thing and then the book another thing um so that's that's really lovely to think about there, there doesn't have to be an end you know it can it continue. Um, so then I wanted to ask you also about your research methods. And so the book is, of course, very ethnographic. And you have these you know, scenes and encounters and you go into the lives of Sasso. You have all of these inter- interviews and conversations. And I wondered about how you navigated Uh, the kind of the stigmatization or the stigma associated with the, with the topic. And, you know, you enter into this community and share their lives and it seems like um, they might be saying things that kind of remain unsaid to their families or to other people. And so it's just a question of how you navigate this, you know, this terrain of ethnographic research um, in this area.
0: You know, as someone who was born in Ghana and left Ghana and went back to Ghana, I did not go back to Ghana just as a queer person. Right. I went to Ghana also as a privileged subject. Right. I had lived in the U.S. for for uh, five years. I've now inherited this, you know, idea of of I've, I've I was within the proximity of Imperial America or whatever that is, and in Ghana that is a big deal. That is actually what I call, you know, racial capital working for you through proximity to the U.S. So I think that me- methodologically, that I. Unlike other Ghanaian scholars who would have had a lot of difficulty identifying a queer community, like I did, that I felt the gateway or the floodgates were open for me. Because most of these men, the Sasot saw me not as a Ghanaian, really. They saw me as a diasporic subject. So I was a safe person for them to be around. Right? That so then being diasporic, it, 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 eerily makes you open and and i think that's one of the things we need to talk about which is you know how the, the the idea is that if you are coming from the west you know you must be open minded you, you must be embracing but that has never always been the case because there's some very very close mind a lot of close minded westerners right but you know in many parts of africa the assumption is that in the west uh will be tolerant, especially in the LGBT human rights movement, right? So queer people somehow assume that all people from the West are tolerant. And I'm like, no, that is not what happens. But that sensibility, that that um ideology if you will really created the opportunity for me to be able to access them that I was a privileged person they saw me now as an african american in so many ways they even called me i am the american man right which then removes any sense of ghanianness from me right and so i think that identity this new identity this new kwame Right, and made it easy. And I say this because I went to an NGO event, Dr. Jilam. It was so interesting. And at the event, two of the SASO who were there were my colleagues from college. I went to college in Ghana, right? And they in college knew me not to be. I wasn't out then, right? So of course they had suspect. They had their suspicions that I was queer, but I was still this very respectable Victorian Christian man. Right? So when they saw me at the event, they had their suspicions. They were like, um, should we trust this guy, right? At the time, they did not know I had traveled, but the other people in the audience knew I had traveled, and they told them that, oh, he's actually one of us, right? And he's actually coming from the US. So they held on to what the, the old Kwame, Right, But the Sasso who I had, had met were, were, knew the new Kwame, and they had to actually temper or temper their anxieties by saying that, oh, no, he is cool. He's cool, people. You should trust him. He's not going to actually out you to anyone. You are in a safe space with him here. Right. So. That moment really struck me as very interesting because there were two conflicting understandings of who Kwame was. And it was a very critical ethnographic juncture of, again, going back to the idea of the native, right? That they held on to this idea of my nativity, right? And or nativeness. And the so that I had just met so thought I was American, right? So it was a very, very interesting experience. Mm-hmm.
1: That's really, that's really interesting and how we always have to take ourselves into account when we go into these situations and we learn things about ourselves as we encounter different people. Um, yeah, I've, i found that as well. Um, and so I have this, this question. So I wondered your thoughts about ethnography in Africa or African studies. And so I asked this because I've seen these you know controversies and critiques in African studies, um, I have to confess, like mainly, I've I've learned about them through through Twitter, um, and so. But they they raise these questions about um, who studies African communities, what is you know what kind of information is shared, how is Africa represented, um, and I don't know that these questions have ever gone away. Like I took a class on peoples and cultures of Africa, which you know is what anthropology classes tend to be called, and like. 2000 at University of Virginia. And so, you know, these were some questions that the professor was was raising. But um, so I just mean to say that, you know, maybe these aren't new. But so I wondered if you have any thoughts, you know, about African studies, how your work fits into it, and then, um, you know, what, what you'd want people to
0: take away from your work. Thank you very much. So I really appreciate that question, not least because um, it gives me an opportunity here to talk about how I feel African uh, African anthropologists, and I mean, I don't, I didn't say Africanist, right? African anthropologists' entrance into the realm of ethnography, right? Our increasing entrance is going to really um, create a huge um, upset in many ways. It's going to upset colonial ethnography, which now c- continues as neo-colonial ethnography. Just as the debates on Twitter unfolded, right? Um, I feel that we are going to, with with the entrance of natives into anthropology, African natives in particular, like myself, that that we are going to see a revival. I'm also thinking that African anthropology, the premise on which African anthropology is built, is going to shift radically, right? Because the foundations of African anthropology is still peculiarly, deeply rooted in Eurocentrism, Right. And so my work is one of the ways, my my, my work, I would hope right, uh, represents a a break, (laughs) a break from this, you know, um, genuflection at the altar of of Eurocentrism. I'm like, no, we need to really look to African culture, African theoretical paradigms because they are there. They do not even have to be written. We have oral tradition. We have symbolic objects, symbolic worldviews, a dinkra symbology, all of these things are there. Right? And so I, I I'm interested in the departure and the departure shouldn't, I mean, the colonial is always going to be there. I'm not like saying that the colonial break is going to be complete because I'm speaking to you in English. That is colonial, right? Um, But like, I I really want us to be creative and I I was hoping to, to, for me, the fun in this work really was, was, going back to African philosophy, dredging up Idinkra symbology and making sense of it by using African life as the fodder, right? That, that, that the, meat, the meat, that this book wouldn't have been as meatier as it was without African philosophy. And I appreciated the fact that I did that. So I think that African ethnography is going to change. And now I think that the problem has to be with our Afri- white Africanists, right? They have to deal with how to engage with the new, what would be the new canon called African anthropology. And, you know, when power is slowly dissipating for those in power, there is always going to be the kind of rift we saw on Twitter, right? And so I, I even assume, like, my, 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 <laughs> when I read, can I talk a little bit about that debate? When I actually saw that debate, I was like, oh, wow. So this is the uh, way these writers, these ethnographers are trying to actually be in the way again, right? Because they realize where African anthropology is going. So then now they have to subsume themselves as Africans, right? To even do this ethnography, right? So I think that African anthropology is going to see a revival and that revival is going to be seen in African studies, right? And quite frankly, I feel that we are seeing that already, right? It's been going on for a long time, but with the social mediafication of academia, that this is going to be further enhanced, right? So uh, yeah, I think my ethnography is one example of what African, African anthropology in the future would look like, I would hope. Jemima Map is coming out with a new book that is really going to also rattle. Quite frankly, I'm excited for that book, you know, because in that book, she's really changing the genealogy of African anthropology, right? We are not going back to the likes of Melville Hescovitz, right? What if we start um, African anthropology with an African anthropologist or with the right? Or with, um, you know, uh, what do you call him? uh, uh Sir, what's his name? He's an African-American anthropologist not Elliot Skinner, I'm I'm blanking out on his name, but like there are all these black anthropologists who who are the progenitors of African anthropology. So she's doing that kind of work. And I'm really excited for the horizons we are forging for ourselves in African studies. And all of us in the diaspora have to participate in that conversation, I would argue. So this opportunity or this forum is one of the spaces where this, this forging is happening.
1: Yeah. Thank you. That was, that's really, that's really exciting. So thank you for telling us about, you know, what's on the horizon, but also, you know, how your work is really important and critical in, in what's going on, you know, currently in the, in the, in these debates. And I like how you said that the social mediaification is um, elevating these debates and it's making it more visible. So, right,
0: right, um, right.
1: which is not, not, not necessarily a bad thing. You
0: know? Right, right, right.
1: So, um, Thank you for that. And so I think we have arrived at, yeah, my last question, which is what projects are you currently working on or what do you have on the horizon for, you know, for yourself?
0: Yeah, I'm really excited for this new project. I'm working on a project on electronic waste, um, which is very, very different from uh, my my first book. But um, I'm interested particularly in waste and it's and this is how it connects to the first book. Because in the first book I'm on queer subjects in very heteropatriarchal context. And because in this context, being queer makes you be read as wasteful, right? Because within the heteronormative order of things, procreation is what makes you you know, a kind of um, a, a responsible generative citizen, right? And so queer subjects in Ghana or queer subjects everywhere too are sometimes read as wasting away their procreative capital. Right. So I'm trying to connect that logic of waste in the realm of production, right, to the logic of waste in my current project, albeit the logic of waste in the current project occurs in the realm of production. Right. So waste as a queer object, you know, um, then is what I'm trying to, or is how I'm trying to enter this new project. Now, Ghana has the world's largest electronic waste dump. Right. And so I'm working currently with um a community of electronic waste workers, right? All of whom come from Northern Ghana, right? And Northern Ghana historically was where enslaved people were captured and, you know, you know um, captured and kidnapped and taken across the Atlantic, right? So after slavery, northern Ghana became the, the colonial reserve for labor. So cheap labor was siphoned to the south, right? And so in, in contemporary Ghana, Ghana is really sharply divided between the south and the north. If you are from the north, you are called a northerner right but then the northern part of ghana is really the most diverse part of ghana it's much more diverse than the south right but if you're from the north irrespective of your ethnic orientation you are called a northerner right so i'm interested in the ways in which these logics of northernness right are tied in with the histories of slavery the histories of colonial labor and the ways in which these histories leave legacies or scars on northern subjects today right And so I'm drawing a lot on the works of Misharov to use, um, you know, at Anthropology and the Savage Slot. I'm interested here in this project in the salvage slot as a theoretical device that allows me to think about the ways in which, you know, anthropology's obsession with the savage slot has actually left ideologically this um, uh, legacy, Right, that underpins why waste has to go to Ghana. So Africa is a shithole precisely because of the construction of the other as existing in a savage slot. Right. So it becomes logical then that the salvage slot, right, replaces the savage slot. Because that is where all the um the, the, the trash and everything is going. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Yes. And that sounds very interesting and We'll look forward to, to seeing that when it when it comes out, thank um, you. Uh, when you bring it to fruition. Um, so thank you so much. I've been speaking to Dr. Kwame Edwin Atu, the author of the book Amphibious Subjects, Sasso and the Contested Politics of Queer Self-Making in Neoliberal Ghana, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much, Kwame, for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This has been very exciting and it's been wonderful having a conversation with you.